Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And we're delighted and honored today to have as our guest, John Eisenberg, who, if not the leading appellate advocate in California, is certainly among the small number of leading appellate advocates. And we'll be talking to John today about a critical issue of appellate court delay, how it affects clients, how it affects lawyers, how it affects our system of justice. First, let me tell you about John. He has nearly four decades of experience in appellate litigation. He's the author of the leading treatise on California civil appellate practice, the Rudder Group's California Practice Guide, Civil Appeals and Writs. He's argued a dozen cases in the Supreme Court of California. He heard a hundred other cases in courts of appeal, United States courts of appeal, and other federal courts. He received the California Lawyers Magazine Attorney of the Year, the Clay Award, for his work on a lawsuit challenging President George W. Bush's warrantless wiretapping program. He, in 2010, was featured in the Daily Journal as one of the 10 lawyers who helped shape the de- decade. He regularly appears on the list of the top 100 Northern California super lawyers, and he has received the Los Angeles County Bar Association's Pamela Dunn Appellate Justice Award for his extraordinary contributions to appellate justice. He's a California State Bar Certified Appellate Specialist, a member of the California Academy of Appellate Lawyers, of which he's a past president, as well as the Academy, the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers. I want to tell you why I gave that extensive introduction, and John, I like to introduce our guests, but I think it's very important in terms of this discussion to understand that John is at the height of his profession, and what we'll be talking about is what lawyers talk about privately, and we will talk about less privately, issues of appellate court delay. Those issues are talked about frequently among lawyers and judges, but you have to have reached a certain point in your career, and John has reached that point where, based on your experience and your status, you feel free to initiate public discussions that are tremendously important that might might not otherwise come into the public arena. So we're delighted to have John. He has initiated this discussion with, with letters uh, and other complaints talking about particular delays in, in the appellate system. And today we, we are talking about this not in the context of any individuals or any individual courts, but in terms of the impact of delay on justice, on clients, and on many others. When the spirit of what has been talked about in the past and what are the possible ways to deal with the harms that we see in front of our eyes. John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us to have this very important discussion. Hi, Howard. Let's get started. Okay, let's get started. In talking about uh, cost of delay, we talk about uh, lawyers and, and other things that happen. But but in terms of, of its real its prices on clients, uh, tell us about some of the harm that's been caused in cases that you reviewed and know about in terms of the impact of delay on clients and participants in the, in, in the justice system. Well, I can speak generally about its impact on the system and public faith in it and specifically about individual cases. I think generally delay in the appellate process fosters uncertainty in business transactions, in marital relations, in uh, crime victims' sense that the process has run its course and they can move on, in collecting personal injury judgments, in paying 10% legal interest on personal injury judgments, across the board. Uh, The more delay in the process, the less faith the public has in it. Specifically, I think back to my first year as a lawyer in 1979 when I had a clerkship at the Court of Appeal in San Francisco with Winslow Christian, a justice there. And the first handful of cases I worked on were relatively small and involved prison sentence of a year, two years, three years. And Justice Christian told me I had to work those up quickly so that the defendants would get the benefit of a reversal before serving out their sentences. 
there have been cases at that court and continue to be cases where prison sentence were, sentences were reversed after release. And it was important that our work in those cases got done quickly. And that stuck with me for the next 40 years, not just in criminal cases, but in all cases. I think back to a a commercial dispute I had in a court about five years ago involving technology that was rapidly changing. And five years from the time of the appeal, it wouldn't matter anymore. The device that was the subject of dispute would have become obsolete. And that's about how long the case sat there in the Court of Appeal. And by the time they put out their notice of oral argument, the party said, don't bother, it's too late. Case never got argued, appeal dismissed. Um, In the course of preparing my complaint before the Commission on Judicial Performance, I took a, a close look at a dozen or so cases, specifically to see how people had been affected. I found sentences served out before the opinion was released. One in particular, a guy served two years, more than two years of a five-year sentence enhancement before the appeal was uh, decided. By the time the appeal was decided, he'd already been released. I saw another case, a premises liability personal injury case where summary judgment had been granted Uh, A number of years later, it was reversed. And the guy could have gone to trial, except in the interim, he died. Uh, I saw a a marital dissolution case where a man, an affluent doctor, had been ordered to pay nearly $13,000 a month in child and spousal support. And he appealed, arguing... I can't work hard enough and long enough to make that much money. <laughs> you need, the judge failed to consider my ability to pay. And indeed, that was reversed. But it was reversed after a three-year and, three and four-month delay between the time the case had been fully briefed and the time it went to oral argument. So this guy paid... A lot of child support and spousal support for a long time before he got an opportunity to make the argument to the superior court that he couldn't afford to pay that much. It's just a few examples. These are the th- these are the reasons why delay in the appellate process matters to me. It hurts people, real people with real problems who need their problems solved or who need justice done. Well we, well, we talk about the concept of delay, and, and the question is, you know, why, what is the appropriate time uh, to handle an appeal? But when we look at the numbers, the Judicial Council uh, just reported that the median time from the notice of appeal uh, to final ruling in the, in the district courts of appeal is 589 days, but it is tremendously various uh, among the districts. In the district that you wrote about, the median time was not 589. It was in the last year, 829 days. And in that district court of appeal, the report from the Judicial Council says 90% of cases in that district were handled within 1,522 days. That means 10% of all the appeals in the district went longer than four years. And I think when we look at this and we look at a time of two to three years as a median, that means if you have a median of 589 days, half the cases are longer than that, some for three or four years. And so there are several issues here. One is the the, the general issue of delay, but a subsidiary issue is if we have benchmarks, statewide benchmarks, in one particular court or district is wildly in excess of those benchmarks. Is that something that should be looked at uh, in, in, in terms of what, of what can be done just on that basis? Well, I would hasten to add just, for, just to, at the outset that averages and medians only go so far in telling us the story of what's going on at the court. 
There have been cases in that particular court that went six, seven years to be decided. But many, maybe most of the cases there, I'm not sure, I haven't checked, but certainly many of the cases in that court have been disposed of expeditiously. Uh, the National Center for State, State Courts in 2014 put out a report uh, with recommendations of average times of that should lapse in, during the appellate process. And looking at the time from case fully briefed to filing of opinion, and I look at that time because that's when the process is completely under the control of the court. The record preparation process, the briefing process, that can take months. It can even take a year or more. That's not under the court's control. But for this period of time I'm talking about, case fully briefed to decision, the National Center for State Courts recommends a maximum of 210 days, five months. And in most cases in California, I think, many, I would have to say at least many, uh, that goal is met. But in far too many, it is not met. It is, <laughs> it's shockingly late. Um, let, me, so, let, let, let me interrupt you for so everyone is yes. clear, uh, for those who may not have an appellate practice uh, and be current with this. Uh, we're talking about two timelines here. The appellant, the party who chooses to appeal, files a notice of appeal. And there's a period of time when it, it also involves control of the parties as to when the case is fully briefed. Uh, the parties may apply for continuances that are granted. There may be delays in putting together the record. We can talk of that as time one, the time from the notice of appeal to the time when the case is fully briefed by the appellant, the respondent, by all amici, there is nothing left for anyone outside the court to do in terms of briefing. We can call that the end of time one. What John is focused on is the time between that period of time when the case is fully briefed and when it is subsequently set for argument and, and decided, because that time is totally within the control of the management of the court, not counsel or anyone outside the court. And so that's the time you're looking at in terms of yes. talking about appellate delay. Uh, yes. And, and so let, let's, let's talk about the broader issue. But first, I think it's really important. Uh, what can be done generally in terms of the court's processes in dealing with the times uh, that are, let's take the, the study you mentioned from the state courts of 200 plus days. Uh, what can be done in terms of dealing with cases that, that in, some case, in some matters dramatically exceed that? What is happening inside the court, do you think, that is causing these delays? Well, that's a big question we need to ask. Why? What is the problem? And I think the focus needs to be on two different things. One, very important question, our courts of appeal are not a monolithic enterprise. There are six districts, several of them are divided into divisions. They cover the state and they cover geographic areas that have had shifting population patterns over time. Uh, I think the central part of the state has had population increases that have outpaced the urban parts of the state. Over time, the third district in particular has come to bear an unfairly heavy burden of caseloads. They have more cases there for justice than the average throughout the state. I think the current number is something like 16%. Their caseload per justice is about 16% higher. So the first thing to look at is, is delay attributable to that disparity in workloads among the state? And the answer has to be yes. It just makes common sense. The other thing to be looked, and that's easy for me to talk about because I'm talking about uh, a system-wide problem that, that, that can't be placed at anyone's feet. The other problem, however, is individual performance. The other question, the other possible cause of delay. 
might be, and there's no other way to put this, that maybe one or two or more justices of that court aren't pulling their weight for whatever reason. The Court of Appeal is an intermediate appellate court. It's often called a workhorse court. The right to appeal to that court is a matter of right. Everybody gets at least one appeal there. Just about every criminal defendant appeals. The number of appeals, criminal appeals in the system exceeds the number of criminal prosecutions because sometimes there are appeals from sentences or denials of suppression motions. So there's a huge number of cases, most of them fairly simple, but surely burdensome that go up to the Court of Appeal. Uh, if not everyone is pulling their weight, the system can quickly fall apart. If that occurs over a long period of time, say there's a vacancy over a long period of time. We've had a problem in the past with governors who take a little too long in filling vacancies. It can hurt the court. If those two strains converge and you get a court that is not just overburdened in cases assigned per justice, in cases in that court per justice, but also has one or two or three of their members not performing or a lengthy vacancy, then you get real problems. Let's and separate that. Let, let's separate these out. Let's talk first in something that you worked on o over the year, made recommendations on, be part of a group that we'll talk about. Let's deal with, with, with a factor that is an objective factor that occurs uh, in population distribution and differential caseloads. Let's say one of the six district court of appeals, for whatever reason, winds up with a disproportionate number, uh, whether it's 10% extra, 16% extra, 20% extra, a larger workload because of factors that are outside the control of the court except for making recommendations to other bodies of government. Uh, and so you look at, at, at that workload. Is there a way, because then clients in that area, uh, uh, in that geographic area where that district court of appeal functions, it's the clients who are being put at a disadvantage in terms of waiting longer uh, for something that's outside of their control. So if the system, using the word broadly, were to say, we at least, we want to deal with that issue for those clients of overburdened districts, is there a way that could be dealt with as a separate matter? Well, there are two ways. One would be to get the legislature to fund one or two more ju justice positions. That hasn't happened in a long time. Not likely to happen in the near future. It's a long process, long and slow process, difficult process. But there is a very quick way of addressing the problem as well. The California Rules of Court give the California Supreme Court and the Chief Justice the power to order a transfer of cases from one district to another or within divisions inside a single district in order to equalize caseload. The last time I'm aware of a mass transfer of cases happening was when the 5th District in San Francisco and the 6th District in Santa Clara were created in 1983, created in 82, went on board in 83. The Chief Justice ordered a transfer of over 150 cases from Santa Clara County um, up to San Francisco because those cases were within that county. And suddenly this court was created that had a huge, huge backlog of cases. And, that, and some of them were transferred up to the first to equalize the caseload. I'm not aware of it happening um, since then. Perhaps it has, but I don't think there's been any mass equalization. Despite the fact, and I guess this is a good time to get into it, that the exercise of this power was urged in a report by a commission called the Appellate Process Task Force 
in the year 2000. Shall we talk about that? That's informally called the Strengthen Commission. Yes, no, I think that's an important part of this discussion. This is not a new discussion. It's not a new problem. It's not a new set of issues. It has been looked at, and the Shankman Commission, the Appellate Process Task Force uh, report uh, in 2000 is a very significant part of that discussion. So tell us about that task force and, and, and what it recommended. Chief Justice Ron George appointed this task force in 1997 to look into and make recommendations for improving efficiency of the appellate process in California. And I, the reason I know so much about this is that I was a member of that commission. I believe there were five appellate practitioners. There were quite a few judges. Marvin Baxter of the State Supreme Court was on the commission. Clark Kelzo was our reporter. I, he wrote the report or drafted it, at least the first draft. Um, there were a few law professors. And we labored for three years. <laughs> I think back on that from 1997 to 2000. Uh, we met, I believe, quarterly. It was headed by Gary Strankman, who was the administrative presiding justice at that time of the first district. And appellate process task force was such a mouthful, we all just started calling it the Strengthman Commission. We issued a report in the year 2000, and it contained five recommendations for measures to be taken immediately and listed a bunch more things that merited further study. Before we get, uh, into, before we get into those specific recommendations, that is a yeah. great a great setting and a great explanation, both for the background and how and why the Shankman Commission was created and the work that it did. We want to hear specifically more about those recommendations. But before we do, you know, those of you listening to this podcast can obtain MCLA credit for the hour of listening through the Daily Journal. We'll now take a short break so that you can hear how to obtain that MCLA credit for listening to this podcast. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. We're now back from the break, and we were talking and were introduced to the Strankman Commission, uh, set up in 1997, worked for three years in terms of dealing with the issues that we are talking about, and who was on the commission, and what it focused on. Let's turn now to what the Strankman Commission considered and recommended in its report. Well, the first recommendation, which was not taken... <laughs> was to take the four standalone divisions in Ventura, San Diego, Riverside, and Santa Ana and turn them into separate districts. That did not happen. It's the second recommendation that I'm so interested in talking about today. And that recommendation was twofold. One was for the Supreme Court and the Chief Justice to periodically consider transferring cases among districts or among divisions within a district to equalize disparate workloads where necessary. The second prong of that recommendation was to have the Committee of Administrative Presiding Justices throughout the Court of Appeals system annually make a report to the Supreme Court and the Chief Justice regarding the workload for each of their courts. 
and whether some equalization was necessary. The idea being that on a yearly basis, the APJs, the Administrative Presiding Justices, would report to the chief on the status of their respective workloads and indicate where some equalization was needed. That recommendation didn't go anywhere. The rule of court wasn't amended as we had recommended. And to the best of my knowledge, there's never been a, an equalizing redistribution. I could be wrong, but I don't know of it. I don't recall it. While we're, talking about, while we're talking about that, pardon me, but before we move on to another subject, as we're talking about that, there will come a time, and now is as good. Let, let me ask you a question about that, because the one factor is the workload equalization. Uh, the other factor is what impact, and this may have been part of the discussion about why it should be done or not, what impact such a distribution would have on stare decisis rules uh, in, in the trial courts in California. So you have a case that comes out of the third district or, the, or another district, uh, and that district is overburdened uh, in ways we've talked about in its appeals. And so cases are transferred to Los Angeles, to the second district. And that district then gets the case, uh, writes an opinion. The trial court was in Sacramento. The appellate court was in Los Angeles. And the question then is, that DCA opinion in the second district under California rules applies statewide still, even though it came out of the trial court in Sacramento. But when there's a subsequent case in Sacramento, uh, in, in that trial court, and there may be a transfer of the, of the appeal uh, to some other district, how, do the, how does counsel deal in that trial court with issues of law that may want to be raised? Does the lawyer have to say in Sacramento, you know, Your Honor, uh, we're bound by the Los Angeles decision. I'm going to appeal this to the, this district, and we think this district court of appeal will decide it differently. Does that add a confusion in the impact of stare decisis throughout California? I don't think so, and here's why. I mean, I can imagine a rare case, a rare circumstance. I'll describe it in a moment. But generally speaking, any court of appeal decision from any district in the state is binding on all trial courts throughout the state. It differs from the federal system where each circuit has its own law. It's called law of the circuit. And a decision from the Ninth Circuit is not binding on courts in the, in the different circuits the trial courts in different circuits. I mean, each, each district can make its own, um, its own law. California, if there's a single court of appeal decision on a point, it's binding throughout the state. If there are two in different districts, it's binding throughout the state if they are in agreement. On the occasions where there's different districts, disagreeing, where there's a split of authority, the superior court can choose which one to follow and does not have to follow the court of appeal in, in whose district that superior court sits. Well, I think that's, that, that's not, uh, I think that's an ordinary difficulty that occurs today when the DCA districts disagree. Yeah. What I was raising, though, was the issue, there's no second district court of appeal opinion. There's just an, a, a trial court, new case in Sacramento, but the second district court of appeal in Los Angeles uh, has rendered the decision. Uh, we yeah. all know, we've all done this enough to know that all lawyers are very sensitive uh, to where an appeal may go uh, and, and to the particular district or even in Los Angeles division that may or may not uh, get that appeal. Uh, it's no secret that different districts and different divisions are viewed differently. Uh, so um, does, that, does that raise a complexity for counsel in the local court where the precedent has now been set by a district court of appeal to which that trial may not, uh, that counsel may not take an appeal. It'll come to a different uh, district court of appeal. Well, I think the scenario you're setting up is Say you're litigating in Sacramento Superior Court, 
There's a second district decision that goes against you. You want to challenge that when you get up on appeal in Sacramento in the third district and see if you can persuade them to disagree with that second district decision. And the Superior Court is bound by that second district decision. You preserve the point for appeal by making it clear to the judge, I know you have to follow this decision. I just want to preserve my challenge to it so on, that on appeal, I can argue that this court should disagree and go the other way. And then lo and behold, after the trial's over, you find yourself transferred down to the second district uh, as part of an equalization of cases. Well, <laughs> now you got a problem. Yeah, I can see that being a problem. I can't see it happening very often, but it does add a layer of complexity, certainly. I think it's worth it for us to uh, avoid a much larger problem of delay and affecting so many people statewide. But yeah, that makes things a little complicated, doesn't it? It's not the first complexity we'll have to deal with, but you mentioned another part of, of, of the uh, Strankman Commission report uh, as a precedent or as a basis for deciding on transfers. There was to be, and there is, a, a kind of annual report on time delays. The question is, how transparent should the reporting be and should there be transparent goals? You know, in, in many areas of life, when you do project management or, or report to others, uh, you set up a, a, a project schedule where certain things are to be done at certain times. And then you report on a monthly basis whether that schedule has been met and if there was a variance from the schedule, why there was a variance from the schedule. Should there be a similar system in the appellate courts where the project schedules are set out uh, for how appeals and timeliness of, of handling appeals with literally a monthly report uh, on every case uh, about whether that project schedule is being met or a variance, and if a variance, why? Do, do, we, want, do we want transparency at that level as there are in so many other areas of life? Well, we do have annual reports from the Judicial Council on trends in all the courts, Supreme Court, Court of Appeal, Trial Court, statistics, numbers. It's called the Court Statistics Report, and it comes out annually. And in a way, it provides some transparency, and in a way, it's really opaque. Uh, a lot of bars and graphs and charts and things, and for someone like me who became a lawyer because he's terrible with numbers and charts and graphs, <laughs> it's daunting. But the main limitations to it is it focuses on courts and the, the appellate process generally. It, in many ways, does not break down the numbers into say, for example, time from case fully briefed to oral argument, you can't find that in the court statistic reports. You have to go into the court records to find it. It doesn't break things down by individual justice. It doesn't say Justice X did this and Justice Y did that. I don't think many justices of the Court of Appeal would exceed readily to having their names with their numbers put in an annual or monthly report. It's just not in their nature to be happy with that sort of thing. Well, let's, let's, let's take it away from, from, <laughs> from sensitivities uh, yeah. about that. One of the way, there are two issues almost of culture here. One is, have we gotten so used to a level of delay that we've internalized it as normal and sort of looked away from its harmful consequences. We talked at the beginning of the podcast about the harmful consequences to clients, the real life consequences. So have we, the first question is, have we internalized these delays? And sort of, that's the way it is. That's life. That's the way the courts function. Maybe we need more money, but these delays essentially are there. And is there a cultural aspect here that, for example, without mentioning individual justice, if the focus were on cases, and you look just at the period, as you said, these reports don't look at the critical period you've identified separately, the period between a case being fully briefed 
and when the opinion came down. Now, the opinion, for a whole bunch of statutory reasons, comes down within 90 days after the argument. So the real issue, what is the period of time between the the time when the case is fully briefed and the argument is heard? And you put into the system every appellate case, and you set a standard. You've done studies. You set a standard. That period should be... The, the national study said five months, take six months, whatever you do, that's the project standard. And then every month you report on the cases in the system that have met the standard or haven't met the standard by case name. And if there's a variance, why there is, so that you track the cases to see whether that occurs. Now, all, all that is, is an issue of transparency and the extent to which transparency affects culture. Uh, is that something? Is, is that the kind of thing that has to be considered in order to focus uh, uh, more on this issue of delay? Well, yeah, I, I think there was a period in the eighties and nineties where there was a movement toward reducing delay in the trial courts, particularly with the Trial Court Reduction Act of nineteen eighty six, and also on, in the Court of Appeal with the creation of the Strachman Commission. It was created for a reason. One of the th- reasons it was created was to look at delay. And there was a real movement uh, among the APJs, actually, throughout the state, and and uh, uh, among some lawyers to see if we can do something about this. Uh, there was a lot of concern. It seems to have fallen by the wayside. We put out our report, the Strachman Commission, in 2000. We had our say, and that seemed to be the end of it. And I didn't hear much about appellate court delay after that. Uh, and things got so much worse since, well, I've looked closely at the past decade. Since 2009, 2010, the number of appeals filed statewide has gone down. A relatively small amount, but it has gone down. The length of time to process these appeals has (laughs) exploded. And why is that? I think a lot of it is just that the institution has stopped thinking about the delay reduction. But I think it's Why important. But I think it's important, and I, I apologize again for getting in, yep. because you've mentioned a very important factor here. There was a, when this was looked at before. I mean, the question can be asked: Can case management make a huge difference? We know that it can from the experience in the trial courts. When I started practicing uh, before the reforms you talked about, when everything in the LA Superior Court went through Department One, and we've talked about this on other, in other contexts and other podcasts, cases went five years. Uh, I found myself in my first case in the 365th day uh, of the fifth year in Department One, and we had a procedural way of dealing with it. But the five-year delay was so great that it really caused an intense amount of attention to this. And so the calendaring was, calendaring was changed from everything going through Department 1, specialty areas being, being out within, within each case, to, an in, to individual calendaring where judges heard a great number of cases from the time of the filing all the way through the trial. And suddenly the delay uh, would, for five years changed. Cases were being concluded. Uh, within 18 months to two years and sometimes sooner. So we have historically an example where attention to case management and attention to the issues we're talking about in the appellate context can make a real difference without more funding, without dramatic changes, without embarrassment of individuals, that there is a case management function, a pure management function, in terms of here that can make a huge difference. And approach that way, it seems to me, the discussion can be very productive because it can deal with the sensitivities that we always know arise when we're asking in some many cases for more transparency. So I only put that in to indicate that the discussion of case management is based on a history in which case management has made a real difference in judicial delays. Yeah, see, this is an easy thing to do. We're talking about relatively modest tweaks to the system. It's not that difficult for a chief administrator or a committee of chief administrators to take a close look 
and tweak the case distribution a little bit to make sure everybody, nobody's having too much asked of them. Uh, that's a whole lot easier to get done than <laughs> cracking the whip over everyone's head and saying, work harder, work harder. Um, I think maybe what's happened here is we all just sort of like got exhausted and gave up. Uh, um, I'm looking at a law review article written by Justice Frankman in 2002 for the Indiana Law Review about the work of the Appellate Process Task Force. And there's a quotation in it that I just love. Here's his quote, quoting somebody else. Justice Frankman says, as Chief Justice Arthur Vanderbilt of New Jersey frequently remarked, quote, judicial reform is no sport for the short-winded. Yes. Unquote. <laughs> and I'm wondering if we've all just kind of lost our wind. Well, let me ask uh, you, let me ask you in, in that context, you've talked about the critical time of between the case being fully briefed and the case scheduled for argument. That is, that is the time completely within the control uh, of the court uh, uh, and its staff. Is there a statewide standard for that? Is there a standard someplace set out by the courts, the Judicial Council or someone else that says uh, the, the ordinary case, and we can, we, you know, you always start with a model of something and you can have distinctions. Uh, you know, there's one thing about a case, a brief summary judgment case uh, that comes up where the case is, the record is not that great. Uh, there are other cases that are more complex, but define a particular case. Are there standards for what that period of time should be in the district court appellate process between the case being fully briefed and when it should be scheduled for argument? Well, that's a question I can answer yes or no. No. Isn't, <laughs> that, isn't, no. That, isn't that the first step that should be considered so that you have, even before you reach the issue of transparency, what do you report on it, but say, here are our models, and we may want to say three different types of cases. Maybe they're these, the criminal cases that deal with certain procedural issues. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we set out, here are three or four or five different types of cases. Wherever that case falls within its definition, the standard for the time between brief, full briefing and argument should be this many months. Wouldn't that be a start to beginning to affect the culture of concern about delay? I mean, and we're not—we're not to recreate the wheel, reinvent the wheel. Uh, there are model standards going back to 2014. There are ABA standards going back much further. Um, others have been there before us. I do think it would be—it could be very helpful to adopt standards. They will have to be. Uh, loose enough to accommodate the occasional monster case, and there are monster cases. Um, sequel cases for starters can be really difficult. Death penalty cases can't do those in three months. Um, but of course, in the death penalty, that was the issue of a public yeah. initiative, I mean, uh, in terms of the briefing. But what you said, there are monster cases. There are different categories of cases. The question is, do you set out standards for some of the categories? Some courts internally have an administering attorney from within rate the cases uh, on a, say, a scale of one to five or one to six to ensure that every justice within the court or within the division gets a fair mix of cases, a few easy ones, a few more difficult ones. When, uh, when I was a staff attorney at the first appellate district in, uh, 83, when we had all those cases assigned from, uh, let's see, as I recall, they took 165 cases from that division to give us the first caseload to work with, to give us an immediate backlog to, to, to assist the, uh, the newly burdened sixth. Um, we went through the staff and we, rated those cases on a scale of one to five, and then parceled them out to the justices in batches that were equalized. And that helped a lot in getting through them quickly and efficiently. 
Well, we've been talking. This is a, we've been talking about cultural changes, about management changes that could occur. Uh, this is a hot, hot story. Uh, it's a story uh, that John uh, Eisenberg, really in his in the filing of, of what he has, uh, and in his letters and publicly, have raised the great public consciousness. It is now very much in the news. It is being covered extensively by the Daily Journal. But the Daily Journal covers many news stories of interest to the legal profession. Let's take another break and hear about some of the other things that the Daily Journal is currently covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by the Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of February 1st. Four more California judges have taken senior status and more are expected to join their ranks in the coming weeks. Some legal experts say the exodus might be Democrat-appointed judges taking the opportunity to leave their seats while a Democrat sits in the White House. In addition to the four state judges who took senior status, several Ninth Circuit judges are expected to step aside soon, allowing President Joe Biden to pick their replacements. The Biden administration has asked Democratic senators to give suggestions for potential judges who are diverse in race, gender, and legal experience. Judge William also tore into PG&E during a hearing about the Zog fire, calling the utility a terror to Californians. Alsop said the company's failure to remove a tree that started the Zog fire, which killed four people, could be considered criminally reckless. The utility has been resisting terms of probation, resulting from their failure to prevent the fire. PG&E argues the proposed terms would result in more shutoffs and would not have prevented the Zog fire. Alsop responded by asking how many deaths the utility has been responsible for by not taking down dangerous trees. Alsop has one year left overseeing PG&E's five-year probation. The Supreme Court has ordered the state bar to look at issues of discrimination against black male attorneys in disciplinary matters. Gregory Harper, who was disbarred in 2019, cited two studies that show black male attorneys are more likely to be disciplined and to be disciplined harsher than white male attorneys. Between 1990 and 2018, black male attorneys faced a 3.2% disbarment rate compared to the 0.9% for white males. According to the bar's reply in January, Harper committed ethics violations related to his client's finances, violations he was also disciplined for in 1994 and 2003. The bar also said Harper did not contest his responsibility for his ethical violations. The issue the bar must now decide on is if Harper was disciplined more harshly than white male attorneys. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back from hearing about the other stories and focusing now on the story of delay. So some of this work that we're talking about in terms of setting standards to avoid it, 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 to avoid what might happen if it were purely an objective wheel of, of where cases go, there are judgments made about the complexity of cases. How difficult would it be to set a standard for the critical time you're talking about, uh, having do already done the preparatory work in that way? How difficult would it be to set the standards for time between briefing and oral argument? Well, that's a really good question. I, I suspect that the administrative presiding justices throughout the state might make the point that, well, we all get different kind of cases. In the sixth, we get a lot of tech, tech industry cases. In the third, we get lots of cases involving government agencies. And we need flexibility from within our district. We, it's not one size fits all. I suspect that argument would be raised. Uh, I also suspect there are ways of dealing with it. We're talking about standards, not requirements. Uh, they might have to be fairly loose, but I think that it would help greatly to have a, to foster a culture of efficiency and concern for delay. That would be one way of doing it. It's absolutely right that we all know there are cases of different complexity. But to say that there are cases of different complexity, that the tech cases may take more, for example, does not answer the question of why there shouldn't be standards for those cases. I mean, you look at the different cases and the issue of cases being different and that they may require different standards 
doesn't mean there should be no standards. You could even for the very complex cases set up the, what the standard should be between briefing and uh, and argument uh, as a transparency measure to begin to affect the culture and and, and bring delay to to everyone's uh, the front front mind. I think that's true. And tell me then about the internal workings of the courts. You know, one of the things. And there's no hard data on this, except I think it's it's pretty much everyone's view. Opinions seem to have gotten longer over time. Um, you know, it, it's not unusual, not only from the Supreme Court, but even from district courts of appeal, to see very extensive 20, 30, 40, even 50 page opinions. Is it your sense that, that the opinions have gotten longer and more longer over the period of time, over, over the decades you've been doing this? Yes, I certainly think so. In the 40 years, 41 years I've been playing this game, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's true at the state Supreme Court level. It's true at the uh, Court of Appeal level. You don't have to take my word for it. Just pull pull a few books off the shelf, shelf from the 60s and 50s and take a look. Now, the question why, that's a harder one to answer. Some people think it's staff-driven. Uh, as it's no secret that the justices of the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court have get assistance from staff. Generally, and when I say staff, I mean research attorneys, career staff attorneys, of which I was one, who uh, spend their time researching and writing, drafting opinions. Um, currently, I believe each justice of the Court of Appeal statewide has two generally speaking. And in the Supreme Court, I believe that number is five, and the chief has a couple more. Um, the caseload has gotten so much heavier over the past 50 years, say, that's what we're talking about now, that staff attorneys are essential to keep the court going. And uh, maybe, certainly when I was a staff attorney, I had to resist the, the urge to write a law review article on every case because that's kind of how I was. <laughs> but between the uh, demand, the, t the demands on my caseload, the demands of the judge I was working for in that first year, uh, uh, Winslow Christian, and later on the demands of the judge I worked for for 14, 13 years, Don King, uh, you know, they're, both of them had the philosophy of these opinions need to tell you straight off what is going on and they need to be what the holding is and they need to be easily understood by a reasonably intelligent person. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, talking about this. Uh, I have some personal experience about uh, this from what amounts to a lifetime ago. Uh, I, I clerked for Justice Roger Trainer before he was Chief Justice. Uh, and the term that I clerked for him, and our opinions were very short. I mean, you go back to the major opinions that the Supreme Court of California issued, and, and the ones that are historic uh, are pretty short. As a matter of fact, law professors complain they can't put as many Supreme Court of California cases in casebooks today uh, because of the difficulties of editing the long opinions. So the, the main opinion that I worked on uh, was a, a pretty significant case, Muscoff versus the Corning Hos Hospital District, which abolished the rule of sovereign immunity in in uh, in, in California, uh, and was listed uh, just as a as a footnote in this discussion by Bernard Schwartz uh, uh, in one of his books on on judicial opinions as among the ten most important non U.S. Supreme Court opinions uh, in the United States because it it led the uh, uh, it led the decisions that abolished state sovereign immunity. Uh, I think the opinion, haven't read it in a long time. I think it was 10 or 12 pages. Uh, and the the goal was conciseness. The goal was clarity uh, and, and conciseness. And now the, it is not unusual uh, to see uh, uh, 50 and, and 60 page opinions that read as though, and I have no personal knowledge whether this has occurred, that reads as though they have been negotiated among justices, both on the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court, among staff, so that part of everyone's work product is part of the, uh, uh, is part of the opinion. Uh, 
And it may be, again, this is a very difficult subject to talk about, and it's very difficult to talk about candidly, but it may be that, um, uh, you know, the increase, uh, it may be that the interests of those who work on drafting the opinions on the staff and their interests uh, may be part of the factor for the length of the opinions and may also be part of the factor for the delay. I think that my understanding is that that's more of an issue in the state Supreme Court than in the Court of Appeal, where uh, in the state Supreme Court, far fewer cases, every case gets the full-blown treatment, full court press. In the Court of Appeal, uh, most of the cases are being done quickly by one staff attorney, not getting reviewed by other staff attorneys. Staff attorney generates a memo, proposed opinion, whatever you want to call it, calendar memorandum, and off we go to the next one. The judges decide the case. In the in the years that I worked there at the, at the first district, I I gradually began to understand that uh, I would, as a staff attorney, work on maybe fifty cases a year. Maybe forty five of them were routine. Maybe five of them were important. And all the more important because of those five, maybe one might go to the state Supreme Court. So there might be four cases I was working on that really mattered in terms of what the published opinion did and said. I felt it was important to be able to distinguish between the two, the routine and the important. Set aside the routine for one kind of a treatment and set aside the important for a different kind of treatment. The routine can be done in fairly short opinions and should be done because they're not being done for posterity for starting decisis to make law. They're being done to resolve disputes among people who really don't need a 50-page exegesis on their problems. Uh, It's those other four or five that you put, you really put your work into, and maybe they do become longer opinions. But uh, to... Treat all 50 in the exact same way, I think is a mistake. But you know, what you've said really highlights the problem of delay. Again, it's anecdotal. And and when we talk about this, we will admit that it's anecdotal. But if you're saying that 45 out of 50 cases, I mean, the DCA is a court of error. And if 45 out of the 50 cases occurred to you as being perfectly straightforward uh, uh, cases in terms of error that may or may not have been committed, uh, that makes the median and the average times of delay uh, all the more striking. And it really means that if if the average is being affected by a handful of very complicated cases, and, and, and if that affects the median as well, then maybe we have to break the statistics down more, more precisely. But it simply goes more to the need for transparency in the types of cases the projected goals, the standards, and some regular reporting of variance. Because if what you're saying is true, with 45 out of 50 cases that you worked on were perfectly straightforward, it's very hard to square that description with the kind of delays we're seeing between the time of briefing and the schedule of oral argument. Well, I think that's why the Judicial Council, when it gets the numbers of the length of time from notice of appeal to opinion, it, 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 it says how many cases fell with that took so many days for 90%. For 90% of the cases, when were they done by? And so for 10% of the cases, they're going to take longer. There's nothing wrong with that. That's normal. But when 10% of the cases take five years, that's not normal. Yes. <laughs> and what you have done, I, I want to, again, I want to say to the, to those listening to the audience and to John Eisenberg, that this is an extraordinary discussion. Because what we have been talking about here, as anyone who practices in appellate courts or practices in litigation in California, knows is constantly talked about among litigators, among appellate counsel, 
in terms of delay and the effects of delay, we have not even mentioned. We've talked about the individual cases and haven't even mentioned the effect of delay on, on adopting doctrine in terms of ambiguity of doctrine, in terms of delay and how uh, the, the lack of resolving in a timely manner affects future planning in businesses and other places. But this is a subject that is widely talked about, but privately. It is, though it sometimes becomes uncomfortable for some, it is a major public service to the cause of justice for John Eisenberg at this point in his career to have stepped forward to raise these issues. He, of course, has been criticized for it, will be criticized for it. That goes with the territory. But these are the kind of discussions that people who have had the experience that John Eisenberg has had and that understand the nature of discussions have to be willing to raise in order for the system not solely to be a question of internal private discussion, but to be the subject of public discussions in an appropriate way. John, we can't thank you enough for how you've raised this issue, for your taking the time to be with us today. Uh, we, we thank you very much uh, for giving us the honor of having this discussion with you. Thank you so much, John. Well, thank you so much. In closing, I would just say you remind me of an old quote from Mayor Richard Daly of Chicago, who once said, I have been vilified. I have been crucified. Yes, I have even been criticized. <laughs> Okay. So, but that's okay. I can live with that. <laughs> Thank you, Howard. Thank I you. really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, John.